Sporting Views is brought to you by Four Seam Leadership, a group of executives, speakers, and coaches dedicated to helping individuals and organizations find greatness. Learn more at fourseamleadership.com. That's the number four, seamleadership.com. makes his move, drives again, back to Davis, Davis for three, bang, Anthony Davis from downtown, and the Lakers take a nine-point lead, timeout Miami. Blitz picked up, Rodgers has his man, the tight end, Tanyan for the touchdown, Robert Tanyan on the receiving end, 19-yard score. NBA Finals, NFL, just two of the topics we're going to dive deep into this week on uh, The Sporting Views. Great to have you with us. I'm Tom Glasgow, along with uh, Bill Kruger. Bill, um, former big league baseball star, Root Sports. We, we've had this little two-man operation going now for, I think, about a, uh, almost two months, and and our family's growing. I'm excited. Yeah. We, we're, we're, we're branching out, and, and, of course, if we're going to do that, we're only going to bring in, Bill, as you know, quality. So a couple of weeks ago, we had an outstanding guest and we decided to talk and say, no, we need to make this guy part of it. And I thought he would reject this immediately, but I threw it out there anyway. Michael Bumpus, Seahawks analyst, Root Sports College football analyst, former college and NFL wide receiver, joining the podcast after today. Michael, we are flattered. Oh man, I'm flattered. Thanks for letting me join this esteemed group of uh of um ballers here we got you know Bill doing his thing. Tom with that voice you can't mistake Tom's voice anywhere I turn on the radio the tv I know exactly who I'm listening to so uh, thanks for having me well I appreciate that you, you guys actually took your your athletic careers uh well beyond the high school that's where it kind of stopped for me I could lie and say it's because I wanted to focus on the broadcasting but the fact is the sports left me at that time so there you go <laughs> Hey, let's, um, let's, let's talk some football. So, uh, you know, here we are, Seattle-based. We have this uh, a tremendous guy we get to watch week in and, and week out with Russell Wilson. And um, he is having, through a quarter of the season, an MVP caliber year. A guy who's never received even a single MVP vote in his career, right? So we're kind of locked into this. We're embracing it. But here's the deal. Even if, correct me if I'm wrong, Russell continues to play at this level. And that's asking a lot, by the way. There are other guys who, if they do that same thing, man, it's gonna, I think it's going to be one of the more fascinating MVP races in NFL history. And, and just to name a few others, Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, a guy who's having a breakout with Buffalo, Josh Allen this year. The Bills are unbeaten. Um, Michael, this thing at this point, I, I think, well, I would love to say Russell's the front runner. I'm not sure we can do that. You know, I think he's the front runner, but not by a lot. And this last week, I feel like Aaron Rodgers kind of caught up to him. Yes, we love Russell Wilson up here in the Northwest, but it's a team sport. And there are other guys who are undefeated. Josh Allen. How about Josh Allen? He's a guy that I didn't really buy into. I knew he was athletic. I knew he could run the rock. I know he can throw it. But when your quarterback is playing at a high level and you're undefeated, you're going to be in the conversation. And then you can't forget Patrick Mahomes, who was kind of like the quarterback of the future. You know, there was a moment in time where guys wanted just a pocket passer. Then guys were like, okay, we're moving towards the mobile. Whereas Pat Mahomes is like, look, 
I'm not going to run it for 50, but I can run it for 25 and I can make every throw out there. You surround me with some, some weapons. I'll be good to go. So yes, Russell is leading the charge, but there are some guys biting at his heels. And then if Dak Prescott had a defense that could stop guys from scoring, he'd probably be in the mix too. Cause you look at his he, numbers. He's leading the league with 1600 yards. He might want to go play some defense. He, maybe he should just go two ways and try to help out that secondary in, in Dallas. We'll get into that a little bit more. Bill, you know, this in terms of, this is the, the irony of an MVP race is is often at the end it's directly linked to the success of the team right and you played with guys who are uh, MVPs or MVP caliber and you know whether it's Ken Griffey Jr. or an Edgar Martinez um, you know uh, junior MVP uh, Edgar I, I never had that but but these are guys that their success the attention they received uh, certainly had a, a lot to do how the team did well, I, I think it, they, they are, they are in, in, in indelibly linked. Um, I, I've always kind of felt that, at least with baseball, that an individual player uh, that didn't play on a winning team could be the MVP. And I think a lot of times, you know, you have less support around you. That means you have to be better, whether it's you're a pitcher or pitchers aren't MVPs. Let's just talk about lineup guys. You got nobody around your lineup to protect you. Then to me, you're even better. Cause you're not, you're, you're getting pitched around and you're, you're not getting the opportunities that if you were in a, a richer lineup that you would have, and uh, that would be pretty consistent with a team that wins. I kind of felt like it's, it's, it's prejudiced against players that play on average teams. To me, there should be an opportunity for a guy to win an MVP. And I don't know about football, Michael, because you know, it's, it's uh, it, it may not be looked upon quite the same way. You don't quite have the individual measures. I guess the quarterback does, but um, and and a guy could be playing from behind uh, every week and putting up massive passing yards, and that wouldn't necessarily indicate that he's the best player. So I, I guess it's it's an interesting conversation, but seems like winning matters. And I think Russell's been a little bit you know pre, predetermined because he had the great defense and playing on the West Coast. But when does that go away? When does this whole West Coast thing go away? When does the East Coast uh, and the guys on the uh, on the mechanical typewriters do they? I mean, when when do we have people that actually can stay up long enough? Of course, in the NFL they play during the day, but I, I just I'm sort of baffled by that. In baseball, we talk about it all the time. That when Griffey was here, or when you know some of the players we've had here uh, got a little lost in the shuffle because uh, East Coast couldn't stay up late enough to see him play. Bill, I, I think I think we're getting close. Just because of technology, right? It's like, okay, there's right. ways you, would think. you don't have to stay up, right? I think we're getting right. close. We'll see, though. Yeah, well, you, Bill, you mentioned the East Coast. East Coast football at the NFL level sucks. I mean, let's, let's be honest. <laughs> How about the Eagles? We're four weeks into the season. In the NFC East, a team with one win is in first place. That's how bad that division is. Yeah, yeah let's that's not kid ourselves. That's bad. And I kind of find joy. I'm sorry. I find joy in that division being so bad because oh, I'm, yeah. from, I'm from L.A., and there's a bunch of Cowboys fans in L.A., and they're always hooting and hollering about their team's going to be this and that. So I find a little bit of joy watching the Cowboys struggle, but um, I also root for Dak because I feel like he's such a good ball player that he should be paid by now. So, you know, I, I find some, some sweetness and some bitterness in, in that situation. Michael, why, why is the Cowboys' defense so, so bad? 
Well, they lost two uh, star linebackers in Van Der Esch and uh, Sean Lee. So that obviously is going to contribute to that. And then it's just the secondary. You know, they're not getting pressure on the quarterback. In, in a league where they're throwing the ball 40 times a game now, if you can't get pressure on the quarterback and have a back end that's going to lock it down, you're going to be in trouble. That's why the Hawks are lucky because they're not getting a lot of pressure on the quarterback, but they also are second in the league in interceptions. So that back end is taking care of things. I know. Bill O'Brien, by the way, the first coach fired in the NFL, uh, GM. He was a dual role uh, with the Houston Texans. I mean, they, they threw a ton of money. And I think rightfully so at, at Deshaun Watson. So ownership there is not thinking, okay, we're going to pay him huge dollars and then we're going we're gonna to go winless for the first month of the season. So uh, he is out and done and uh, others may be following um, in some short order. I want to talk college football. Uh, Pac-12 teams getting ready to hit back out onto the practice field, the season to get underway the first week in November. Um, Bill, just just in general, I mean, it's been odd. I mean, usually this time of year, I'm I'm leaving town on Friday to go call a college football game, and then you know that that rhythm's broken. How do how do you think this is going to feel like? Assuming the Pac-12 does get off the ground and and plays this abbreviated season. Well, I think uh, you know the, the the fan bases are dying for the for the product. Um, it's a little different, I think, on the West Coast because uh, it's not quite the fervor. I think there's the following, but there's not the fervor. You know, the at game experience fervor, and then plus it just seems like it's always the second class citizen time slot kind of deal. It's like, well, we're playing at nine o'clock at night. No, we're playing at ten in the morning. I'm, I'm probably over exaggerating, but you know, the Pac-12 doesn't get a lot of respect there. Larry Scott is obviously a part of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the product, the players, the teams are very, very good, but they don't uh, quite get the respect that the other big five conferences get. But uh, out here, we care. And I think there's some, some, some really good football. I'm not an expert on it, but um, you look at the cast of teams out here I and mean, you look at um, certainly uh, USC, they've got, you know, always had a great reputation. Stanford's been solid. Oregon's got a ton of money and they're pretty good. I think the Huskies are always really good. And I won't uh, disparage Washington State because they've always been pretty good, even though they, they kind of ride along below the radar a bit. So how's that, Michael? Is that fair? You know, Bill, I appreciate that. You know, <laughs> I, if you're, if you're a Washington State cool, you know, there's some good years, there's some bad years. And as hard as it is for me to say this, UW has been really consistent. They have great recruiting classes. Um, Lake is doing a great job over there thus far. So you got to give respect where respect is due. And I'll tip my head off to UW. I'll just remind people that I am three and one against those guys. So, ah, yeah. Well, your, your record is much better than Mike Leach's record. That's, uh, <laughs> that's probably why there weren't a lot of tears shed when Mike made the jump down to Mississippi State. By the way, they go in and, and knock off LSU. And, of course, very Mike Leach-like in some ways. They lost their next game. But, um, so I want, but I want to talk about your old program, Michael, because you got Nick Rolovich coming in to succeed Mike Leach. Uh, unlike over at UW with Jimmy Lake and this really bizarre set of circumstances uh, related to COVID and, and college football, the transition there, I think, would be – much easier. A lot of familiar faces, not the case over in Pullman. What do you think the challenges are going to be with Nick Rolovich? Obviously, uh, a different staff, a different approach to, to playing the game. How do you think it's going to work out in, in year one, again, assuming there is a year one? It's rough. A lot of what football is, is chemistry and believing that you're going to this guy standing next to you is going to battle for you. And Rolovich is trying to build a culture and a chemistry 
during a time where contact is limited with his players. And that's a huge part of it, being able to look your, your players in the eyes and say, look, follow me. This is the plan. This is what we're going to do. And then you have a whole new coaching staff who's coming in and trying to, to do the same thing. So, uh, And then you add in the fact that Wazoo doesn't get the five-star guys. They don't get the, the four-and-a-half-star guys. So a lot of their success is predicated on getting guys to buy into their system and what they're doing. So it's definitely going to be tough for Rolovich. What I do like about him is he is very active on social media. You are coaching 18 to 22-year-olds. That's what they do. So he has a slight advantage. Now, you look at – you go across the other side of the state, UW, I mean, Lake has been there. He's in the recruiting uh, process. He's been a staple in that, in that program for a while. So he's still facing some of the same challenges, but he's been there and done that. Rolovich is, is starting from scratch and trying to – kind of build off of what Leach has done, but at the same time, make it his own. So um, it's relationships, it's chemistry, and that is something that is going to be tough to do in these times. Well, my big, my big hope when it comes to Nick Rolovich is he has no pirate stories. I'm over the pirate stories. <laughs> I'm done with all that nonsense. I don't know if you liked it, Michael. It's, no. It sort of was a shtick to me that got kind of old. But, uh, you know, my, look, my, Mike Leach, I, he, he got a lot of wins. Didn't get a lot of wins in the Apple Cup. That was that was part of the issue there. So I don't know. I think it's going to be it's just to be fascinating to see. Watch, Bill. In terms of you know when we watch NFL football, most of which is without any fans, um, we're watching college football, and there we see games where there are fans in attendance. I think to a greater percentage. How does it feel? I mean, we we we've kind of you know we've seen the bubble, um, Major League Baseball without fans. That just college football, you know, it's the tailgating, it's the energy, it's the band, and it's it's different, man. Yeah, it's it's lacking. You know, I mean, the athletes are out there; they're good. I mean, I think for the most part, I mean, notwithstanding, you know, kind of this uh, truncated practice regimented time prior to the season, I would think at some level there's something lost there. Um, what I've observed is just there's just a lack of of presence of uh this this moment this like you know college football today kind of feel right where it's just incredible uh following and pageantry and bands all the things you talked about tom and i think it young players are are kind of they want that that that's part of what what you know what college is it's it's the camaraderie and it's the emotion of the weekend game and and we're just uh we're really married to that and we're really missing it and we're just going to have to deal without it. We're just going to have to sort of, I suppose, I mean, are they, are they using any fake noise at football games for college or are they just uh, hoping that the smattering make enough noise? That's a good question. I have no idea. Yeah. I, I don't know, know if what we're getting on TV is the same as, as what they get in the stadium. It's, yeah, it's, um, it's just such a, uh, obviously an unusual circumstance. Michael, I'm wondering just as a, as a player, look, you, you guys both would not have reached the levels you reached unless you were highly competitive people. You didn't get to just be competitive during a game. You had to be competitive in the weight rooms. You had to be competitive in the offseason. You had to be competitive at, at practice. Bill, in your case, it's spring training. Michael, for you, training camps, uh, spring ball. But game day, Michael, for a college football player without fans or many fans or without the band um, – is is that a significant challenge to get motivated, you think? 
Uh, you know, for some, I would think it is uh, during certain times. And, you know, I don't know what it's like for baseball, Bill, but I know for football, when I walk into the stadium, I'm looking in the crowd. I'm, I'm feeling the energy, whether it be with me or against me. I remember going to Auburn and having so many birds flipped at me, and I loved it. I love that interaction. Like, yeah, hate <laughs> me. Give me that energy. I want all of that. <laughs> going into Martin Stadium uh, the same way, walking out, and, and the student section is what makes college football special, right? They've had their adult beverages. They've been waiting all day for this moment. And there's so much pride that goes on in a college football stadium that I fed off of that. Now, I've also gone to spring games at Wazoo where there was 50 people there. And I'm a freshman. I'm trying to make this ball club. So I'm not really worried about uh, the fans out there. So fans come into play for me before a play and after a play. During the play, it's football. You're not focused on that stuff. It's before and after where it kind of gets lost a bit. And I've been to Seahawks games with no fans. And those guys seem like they've done a great job of staying engaged and, and feeding off of each other. My question is, Bill, baseball. Because I feel like with baseball, I get the most energy out of baseball during the playoffs. I don't know what the regular season is like. I mean, what, what's your angle on that? Well, you know, baseball is a little different. You know, you start uh, – you make the journey under the radar – you know, you play, you know, even high school, college, you know, there just isn't a lot of hype. Uh, you go to the minor leagues. Wow. That's, you know, no hype. And so you're kind of used to that, right? Uh, it's, there's, there's internal pressure to be successful. It's a grinder kind of game, longer season. You have to kind of, you know, weather the, the ups and downs a little bit. And then you finally get to the big leagues and that's when the crowds show up. And there are guys that are a little bit uh, overwhelmed. Um, I had the fortune of at least being in college basketball where I played in front of big audiences, right? Not that I played in front of them all the time, but I was, you know, kind of ready for that. I didn't really feel that, that issue when I walked on the field. Uh, it's, it's exciting. I mean, and I think that, that, that as you, as I went along, I always felt what was really great. And I didn't, you know, I was a, mostly a starting pitcher. So it was my day, right. To pitch. And I wanted to carry the game as far as I could. You know, uh, just got to make a slant. I got to take a swipe. Six innings is not a big start, okay? I'm just going to let you know that. Six innings yeah. is not a big start. It is now, Bill. Sorry. Oh, Maybe I know. not so when you five. pitch. You're, you're, you're a horse. You're, Bill, all we you're care just, about you're, is you're, you're, the you're, quality you're, start. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, but I'll tell you, to go into these East Coast parks, to go into Fenway or, or go into to, uh, New York and beat them, and stop the St. Frank Sinatra song. Yeah, that, that's, that's something. And you have a very uh, adverse, you know, had that adversary you're talking about, that hostile crowd issue that you get. You get that on the East yeah. Coast in baseball during the regular season, Michael, where they I, don't I, like you and they're close to you in the bullpen and they let you have it. <laughs> and uh, you can feel it, you know, and when you can beat it, it's great. Well, that's an awesome point. The first time I ever walked into old Yankee Stadium – it was the 2000 American League Championship Series. Right. And, and that energy, I've never felt an energy, regardless of sport, in an athletic arena, if you will, than how it yeah. felt in Yankee. Man, there was just an intensity, Michael, there that was really something. And, you know, as I'm watching the, the Hawks last week down at Miami, and, and there were some fans there, I was thinking, you know what, I, I bet Russell and company prefer to play on the road with some fans yeah. At home where it's vacant, like because as a as a visiting athlete, you you can feed off that, obviously. Yeah, um, you can definitely feed off of it. Bill, I hear you talk about 
stadiums and I'm from LA and the cheapest seats are in the outfield and with cheap seats brings rowdy people. And I remember going to the uh, Dodger stadium in the outfield as a kid, I'm like 10 or 12 years old. And uh, my mom is just holding me tight because these fans are, are getting crazy. And I was like, I didn't know baseball got this, this riled up, you know, and you mentioned being, I can imagine being in the bullpen. I feel like the bullpen, they probably get most of it. You know, they're, they're, it's, they're so close to the crowds and, and then you're asking a guy who's been sitting there getting heckled at for what, seven, eight innings. All right, now go out there and, and save this ball game for us uh, so this pitcher can get this win. So different. it's nice to hear that side of it because as a football player, you know, I, I, I wasn't even aware of that until just now. It's good stuff. It's good stuff, those stories. Do you need battery dodging at, at, at Yankee Stadium, Bill? Some, well, I, I, I can sell D cell batteries it's, it's, coming it's at true, you. The true part of being a little bit of a loose cannon, that's what makes the reliever a great reliever. I was never very a good fit out there. I was more of a starter, get prepared kind of a guy. Um, that didn't really suit me as well. But I can tell you that warming up in some of these places, I mean, you go to Fenway Park and you're warming up, there are idiots that are standing within touching distance of you the whole time you're warming up. And it's, it's a dialogue that goes for 20, 25 minutes the whole time you're throwing. You know, you got nothing. They're going to get you, Kruger. You got nothing. And he goes through the whole lineup <laughs> of all the guys that are going to beat the heck out of you. So, I mean, those, it's, that, that's why when you do take it to them, it's great. Because out, like in Seattle or some of the West, it just, it just have that same kind of intensity, right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a little bit of that. Once you get in the middle of the field, it's, it's off. Yeah. Pretty, good, pretty good Boston accent there, Bill. <laughs> pretty good better than mine that's all i can tell you i, I hey, kept it i kept it family friendly so I'll, i hope you appreciate that it's a podcast you can do whatever you want don't even worry about it Hit that horn. gotta get a new horn hey it's time for our uh, stars of the week presented by ecliptic brewing pour some space in your face it's great beer ecliptic brewing com as I as I mentioned before I, I used to be a beer nomad but I found Ecliptic Brewing Michael and I'm, I'm just locked in great line of beers check it out get more information at EcliptiCBrewing.com Michael uh, who is your star of the week my star of the week is a guy that I feel like I can just relate to and that's Ryan Neal guy who's on the practice squad for the Seattle Seahawks um, goes home after practice gets a call on Saturday or Sunday and says look you're gonna play Plays against the Dallas Cowboys, seals the game with a pick. The next week, all right, let's see what he does now, knowing he's going to play, knowing he's going to get a bunch of snaps. Third play of the game gets an interception. The next series, he smacks a local legend in Miles Gaskin and sets the tone. So for a guy who was on the practice squad, now not only do you get elevated and you get to play and live your dream, also – that game check looks a lot nicer than a practice squad check. I'll tell you that. And practice squad checks are still good, but you get that game check, it's, uh, it's life-changing. I got my game check. I sent my mom 10K off the top. So um, it's nice to see a guy who grinded, get his moment, and then perform. NK, that is a good son right there. Hey, um, I'm glad you brought up Ryan, Ryan Neal. Is he a player? Have you seen enough? Is, is, or is, you know, has he just had a couple of good games, but do you see things in his game, Michael, fundamentally that you go, you know what, um, he can play. No, I, I, think, I think he can play in this league. And as a safety, your main objective is to not give up the big play, right? But in this Seattle defense, he either has deep thirds 
or he's coming up in the flat and he's trying to impose his will like he did on Miles Gaskin. He looks comfortable out there. He's not the biggest guy, but when he comes down to tackle, he tries to deliver a blow like he's Cam Chancellor. So he's not, he's not scared of anything. I talked to Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll says he's where he's supposed to be. Um, Ryan Neal, he can play in this league. Unfortunately, once Jamal Adams gets healthy, he'll probably be back on the bench. Hopefully he's on the bench and not on the practice squad. Yeah. Well, I, I had to ask that because I need to know if he's ecliptic beer worthy. It sounds like he is. Bill, who's, who's your star of the week? <laughs> Well, I, I, you know, baseball is in its prime right now with the playoffs. So I, I went baseball and I, uh, of course, always appreciate something that's a little bit more old school than new school. So my uh, star of the week is Liam Hendricks, uh, the closer for the Oakland A's. He had a great year. But, you know, if you look back at the White Sox series, which they had to win in three games, he threw 49 pitches. The next day, he closed the game out to win the series. It was tight. Uh, and then you watch him yesterday come in and do a Raleigh Fingers, Sparky Lyle, Goose Gossage three-inning of one hit shutout baseball to to get the save. Uh, this is pitching. This is the way it's supposed to be uh, when you're the guy. I don't know if he can continue to do it. I mean, the Oakland A's are looking for him to have to. I mean, he may pick up the ball today. They're going at it today. So uh, he's uh, he's an Aussie, and uh, there's something about those Aussies, man. They just they they just uh, have no pain, no fear. They have this like something about them. And uh, so I I have to admit, I'm I'm a fan of a reliever this week which would be unusual for me, but it's Liam Hendricks. All right. Um, I traveled years ago with uh, about 45 Australians. It was a tour of uh, the Scandinavian countries. I'm in my 20s, right? Single. I, I, mm -hmm. I feel like I've, I've kind of figured out how to party, always responsibly, of course, until I traveled with 45 Australians. <laughs> the, the bar was, was raised dramatically. So I, I think you're onto something, Bill. By the way, before I, I give you uh, my star of the week, um, real quick to follow up, Bill, on, on, on baseball, this expanded playoff seems to be working. The ratings uh, are very encouraging for this 16-team format. Now, I know the commissioner moving forward wants to go to 14 teams, draw it down a little bit. Um, but, but if you've got rating success, they're definitely not going back to the old way. No, it, it, it's going to stay, and I think it makes sense. I mean, they've been so elitist with baseball. It used to be one team in the National League, one team in the American League. <laughs> we, yeah. We've gone a long way since then, but I think there's, there's just too much competition, too many cities you want to have engaged. Baseball wants to have – regionally, it's doing well, even though it says it's, everybody says it's a dying game. But nationally, this is what's helping them. Of course, if the Yankees fall, <laughs> the ratings go down, and they could fall to Tampa. Yeah. Wow. How about that one for yeah. a second? But the Dodgers are in. I mean, yes, I think it's great. 14, 16, I think he's probably right. There's two that probably don't necessarily belong. But then one of those is Miami, and they're still in it, well, at least for a couple of minutes. Uh, yeah, so I I'm happy for it. Bill, what do you feel about the um, extra innings with the guy starting on second base? Me personally, um, I wasn't a huge baseball fan growing up. So now that they're, they're kind of tweaking the game a little bit, it gained my interest, and I find myself watching more baseball just because I'm expecting something different. You being a guy you know, who's been in the game for a while, how do you feel about that? Not a big fan. <laughs> You're probably not surprised. <laughs> Man on second seems kind of contrived to me. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could ask the same questions about the, uh, the sudden death in, in football between college and pro. I'm sure you'd have a certain opinion about that. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a certain amount of need for uh, the game to, to, to happen with baseball. 
I, I've tried to work him on this, Michael, because uh, I'm with. I told him we, like um, soccer, soccer. You get you get the penalty kicks right, and, and it's it's not how the game is supposed to be decided. But you can't you can't look away. You yeah. can't look away from the PKs. College football overtime. The bill just talked about. You know, it it inflates stats. It takes you know a guy can throw for ten touchdown. They're like what? But but people watch. You can't turn away. So. We got to keep Some, these things are here to stay. Yeah, I yeah. think hey, he's a pitcher too. He's a pitcher. He doesn't want a guy stand on second base. He's like, come yeah. on now. See, part of the reason, I, part of the reason we brought you on board, and me specifically, we can just we can work on Bill. Now I don't have to work on him just by myself. You got we can, help. We can break him down eventually. But I appreciate his respect for tradition. All right, here's my star of the week. You two, Ryan, Neil, excellent. Liam, Bill, terrific. But but mine blows them both away. I'm going with Sue Bird. Sue Bird of the Seattle Storm has just uh, been part of her fourth WNBA championship team. She is playing as good a ball as she has played at the age of 39. Her first WNBA title to the next one, a 16-year gap. She is also – that enough. That enough. That's enough. She's a four-time Olympic champion. She's a four-time world champion. A couple titles at UConn. So – because of that resume, more specifically, what she just got accomplished this week with the Storm Sue Bird is my star of the week. Brought to you by, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Brought to you by Ecliptic Brewing out of this world beer. Again, more information on their great line of beers, their brewery uh, in Portland at ecliptichbrewing.com. Utter and complete domination in a year we will never. cheat the game I do what I have to do to, to be able to play at a high level and I mean you saw it this is this is not one person it's not even two three people our entire team that's why we're able to succeed so it's been an honor to play with you guys um, again I can't believe I'm standing here right now it's pretty crazy Sue Bird and the Seattle Storm a fourth WNBA title one of our topics as we talk all things hoops with a guy who knows all things hoops root sports basketball analyst and former NBA scout Francis Williams, who joins us from a, a chilly by recent standards, Palm Desert, California, dropping all the way into the mid-90s, big fella. You might need a hoodie today. Yeah, we might have to break out the scarf tonight, but uh, <laughs> no, it, it, you know, there's been record-setting heat in this part of the country, and the triple-digit days have been very common for uh, oh, going on two or three consecutive months. So, Today's supposed to be the first day that is not going to get into triple digits. The people here are looking forward to that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's been a great stay, and it's been nice to just get the sunshine and change the scenery because we've all been sequestered for, for quite a while. You mentioned heat. You see what I'm going to do here, Francis? You see how I'm going to make this smooth trans- that's, transition? That's the, that's the pro that you are. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. That was my setup uh, to you to do to say exactly that. So we've got game five of the NBA Finals on tap tomorrow down in the bubble with the Heat in a uh, rather dire circumstance, trailing LeBron AD and the Lakers uh, three games to one. Is there any way, anything that Miami can do to possibly win three straight games and take the title away from the Lakers? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, the, the playoffs are always about um, about matchups and about uh, adjustments. 
And uh, obviously the Heat had to scrap their initial game plan by trying to play the, the uh, Lakers zone. Uh, Lakers just had too much size. Uh, it, it allowed uh, LeBron to just con completely control the game uh, from the offensive perspective of, of the Lakers. So he got everyone involved. He was making life real easy for AD. It was making uh, Dwight Howard look like a million bucks. But then the Heat, to their credit, they, they scrapped that. And even with the two injuries to, to uh, Drago and to, uh, to um, Bam, you know, they come back with a different game plan. And the game plan, along with um, maybe the Lakers taking their foot off the gas a little bit, and then uh, a performance for the ages by Jimmy Butler, allows Miami to get back into it. Uh, game four, the Lakers kind of reestablished their dominance uh, at every position, because as you can see, they've got a lot of depth. They've got a lot of size. They still got the best player on the planet. Uh, and even though uh, AD wasn't as uh, sensational as he was in the first two games, he kind of got back to being himself. And then you always need that third guy, and it was Contavious Caldwell-Pope. So the Lakers with, are never without a floor leader because if it's not LeBron, it's Rondo, who is probably going to be a Hall of Famer if, if he gets another title here. Rondo's um, invaluable to what the Lakers like to do. So to answer your question, I don't think that there's any way Miami can beat um, – them three games in a row for all the reasons that I mentioned. I tell you, I know within NBA circles, Jimmy Butler is no secret, not even close. But I, I think this, this bubble ball, if you will, has allowed maybe a more casual NBA watcher to see more of Jimmy Butler. And I think the more anybody sees a Jimmy Butler, the more you like him. This, he has been strictly about business being in the bubble. I mean, he was one of the guys that told his family that they couldn't come. Uh, I think part of it was for health reasons, but I think thought of it, part of it was because there was a focus that he knew was going to be necessary for him to be at his best. Um, he got a bad rap, I think, as maybe being a bad teammate because he had changed teams so much here uh, recently from the Bulls, um, you know, where he was drafted to uh, Minnesota, to Philadelphia, but then he lands in Miami. Landing in, in Miami, I think, uh, Pat Riley has probably been the best thing that has happened to Jimmy Butler because we can see how competitive he is and his willingness to work um, and his willingness to work. If you start going back to his story as being a, uh, you know, he was a late round pick. A lot of people overlooked him. We're talking about a guy that at one point in his life was homeless. So I think when you put all of those factors together, uh, that's what you get with Jimmy Butler, uh, tireless worker, incredible competitor, obviously a good teammate. He rallies his teammates. He makes the guys around him better. And uh, I think, as you said, the, the bubble and those of us that are, that are watching this uh, minute by minute, you get a new appreciation for Jimmy Butler because you've seen him do it now for going on three months. Yeah, terrific talent. Hey, I want to talk about, uh, since the last time you and I spoke on this uh, podcast, uh, Doc Rivers has a new team. So Steve Ballmer decides to make the change with the Clippers. Uh, Doc ends up in Philly with the 76ers. How do you think he'll fare with that group? Um, you know, I, I really thought Philly rushed into that. He became available. They scrapped everything that they had been doing up to that point because uh, they, they knew that they had a chance to get Doc. Now, on the one hand, that says a lot about him. Um, and they were willing to do what they had to do to secure him as their coach. But I really think that they rushed into that. But with that being said, 
you know that the two key factors on that team, Embiid and uh, Simmons, are going to give him the respect that he's due as a coach, and he's going to do everything he can to get the best out of him. Now, that doesn't mean that Simmons is going to now all of a sudden have a three-point shot in his arsenal, but uh, I think the respect that Doc uh, garners will put Philadelphia in a different light and give their franchise a needed shot in the arm if Doc is able to go in and, uh, and, and, and work his magic, so to speak. I mean, he's, he's got some demons. I mean, losing the 3-1 leads that he has as a coach, I mean, that's not easy to live down. Um, but I guess if you want to make a positive out of it, he had some teams down 3-1, which a lot of coaches never get to that point either. So uh, it, it, it gives him a new, a new lease on life. Uh, you know, with, with back to Steve Ballmer for a minute, I think that he may have gotten a little impatient, but I mean, he's an owner. And he can do what he wants to do. And I'm sure he was highly disappointed for them to go out the way that they did with all the resources that they dumped into this season. And so not even getting to the Western Conference Finals, I'm sure was a major disappointment. And so he reacted to it the way he did because uh, the word was he wanted to get rid of everybody. And it looks like they may have Paul George on the block, that they may be moving him to uh, add some different pieces. So uh, once we figure out who's going to be leading them and then which direction they want to go with their style of play, uh, you know, he's, he, he's got enough money that he can do what he wants to do to try to, to, to build a winner with the personnel that he wants to put in place. Yeah, usually not very successful when you when you tell a billionaire to wait and be patient. They they usually yeah. don't. They usually are not down with that. And you know how I feel about Steve Ballmer. Folks that don't know, we're we're all Seattle area. Ballmer is as well. We obviously crave a return of the NBA here. And I I just after they got knocked out of the playoffs, I just made a public plea to Steve Ballmer: get out of L.A. You're always going to be the JV, no matter how <laughs> successful you are when it comes to comparisons with the Lakers. Do what you yeah. got to do to get out of whatever you got to get out of. Bring a team to Seattle, be a hero, and yeah. that team will be embraced. So anyway, that, that, that's again, I'm going to put it out there again. I know Steve yeah. Ballmer's listening, but that's I'm how that's how I see it. The Lakers yeah. are going to always own L.A. And even if the Clippers win a title, it'll be a brief time at the top, but it's mm -hmm. always about the purple and gold in Los Angeles. All right, let's uh, – speaking of Seattle basketball and the Seattle Storm just wrapping up a fourth uh, WNBA title in franchise history as they got it done in Florida in what they refer to as the Wubble. Uh, so congratulations to them. Second title in three years. And as I mentioned, fourth overall, I want to talk to you a little bit about Sue Bird because to me, she, she has got to be considered at least top three all time in women's basketball. Uh, maybe the most impactful guard in women's pro basketball. She's now a four-time champion her first title to her fourth is separated by 16 years, which is a tremendous accomplishment. Playing at a high level at age 39, a four-time Olympic champion, a four-time world champion, two titles at UConn. I mean, her, her resume is off the charts. I just want you to speak about, just as a basketball player, not a women's player, but just as a, as a basketball player, um, what Sue Bird has meant to the sport. As you mentioned about us being Seattleites, I think uh, simultaneously we in Seattle, uh, with the absence of NBA basketball, I think um, the spotlight has shined a little brighter on Sue. And I also think that the same thing is happening with Russell Wilson. And I just hope that we in Seattle have not and we are not taking them for granted because we've had them from the beginning of their professional careers. 
both of them are doing incredible things that you don't see and you don't get to see them up close the way we have for these past uh, number of years. But specifically with Sue, um, I don't know, that, you know, there's nothing else that she has to left to accomplish. Um, and what she has been able to do with every team that she's played on going back to high school is win. And uh, the resume that you just uh, outlined, you take that from high school all the way to where she is now, just an incredible career. And for her to be playing at the age of 39, approaching 40, at the level that she's playing, uh, it's a testament how she has had to have taken care of her body because she has had a couple injuries. But she's been able to come back from those injuries and play at a high level. So I think it's a testament to the respect that she has for the game to be able to play at that level, knowing that this is what I'm going to have to do to take care of my body, to be able to play at what is considered an advanced age. But she is so cerebral, has such a great feel for the game, does everything that she needs to do to get her to, to make her teammates better. And she's just had an incredible career that, as you said, will probably uh, send her uh, into definitely being top five all time in terms of, of women's basketball. And we in Seattle have been fortunate enough to see that. Yeah, without a doubt. She is, uh, she is something special. And I love what she said in regards to uh, never cheating the game. She, she clearly has not done that. She'd be the first to say that this Storm Championship is not just about her, but Brianna Stewart, who's the MVP of the finals, uh, probably the best player in the WNBA as we speak, Jewel Lloyd as well. So a, a, a terrific talent. Um, with that group. We'll see if they can uh, repeat and make it number five next time around. Francis, we always appreciate the insight. Stay cool down in the uh, desert. We always appreciate the time. Thanks a lot, Tom. So again, our thanks to uh, Francis Williams, breaking down all things hoops. Guys, want to get back to the, uh, the Heat and the Lakers game five Friday. Michael, does it end in game five? It's a wrap, baby. It's a wrap. <laughs> We've been waiting too long. They got their one game. It took Jimmy Butler dropping 40 points in a triple-double. Only been done two other times. And he did without making any threes, which is impressive. You can't deny greatness when you see it. Yeah. But they're out, man. LeBron, AD, that's all you need. You need these other guys to make corner threes, and you'll be good to go. So it, it was fun, Heat. It was nice to see you compete. But the championship's coming on home to L.A. It's a wrap. Southern California native. There you go. Michael Bumpus. Not a Clippers fan, apparently. Huh? Oh, heck no. If you're a Clippers <laughs> fan and you're in my family, you're no longer a bumpus. I'm just going to say that right now. <laughs> Fair enough. Bill, former University of Portland basketball standout. Um, is it over in five? I think Michael's probably right. Um, of course, I, I, Ben Albamano helped them this last game. But if they'd had Dragic, it would be a series. I'm serious. It'd be a series. The Heat have great chemistry, and they play together, and they move the ball. And, and uh, you know, LeBron and AD, they're great. And when they get contributions from uh, other people like Rondo, you know, and Morris, you know, they're getting hope. They're getting some help from other places and making some shots. Um, it has to be a perfect game. You know, Jimmy's going to have to have a big game. He's going to have to keep the ball. They're going to make shots. They're going to have to keep him in a half-court game. There's a lot of things that have to go right. Is it possible for the Heat to win one more? Yes, it's possible. Is the series over? The series is over. It's Lakers for sure. And uh, but I would have loved to have seen Dragic play the whole series and Mabano yeah, because I think the Heat had something going on. I think it could have shook 
shook the Lakers up and took them to seven and made them bite their nails a little bit. Yeah. I knew, I knew it was over in five when, when the Lakers announced they're going to wear their Mamba jerseys in game five. They're bringing them back. They're not doing that on accident. They're going to pay tribute to Kobe. They're going to take care of their business. They're going to be done in five. And uh, I do give credit. You got to give credit to the Heat. They weren't even a playoff team a year ago. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned uh, uh, Bam, uh, Tyler Hero. They've had some guys that have, that have really stepped forward this year. The more I see a Jimmy Butler – I love the way he plays the game. Uh, guys, the, uh, the new version of The Sporting Views, we wrap it up. Michael, great to have you on board. We look forward to more. Bill, as always, will continue to track uh, baseball's postseason and everything else out there going on on The Sporting Views. Guys, thanks so much. 